Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror pop culture related. From reviews to interviews, top 10 lists, and everything in between, they have it. I highly suggest go checking them out while you're listening to this episode of the podcast now. And don't forget to check out their catalog of other podcasts to listen to as well. It's chock full of great things and there's a new one on the way, so keep an eye out for that. Today's episode brings us to another true crime-ish style story. Back in the 20s, and I mean the 1920s, there was a man who preyed on young children. He was known by many names, but most know him as Albert Fish, and he was potentially the world's first boogeyman. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Albert Fish was one of those people who was very unassuming. Looking at him, you would never think about the vile crimes that he had committed. He was a frail little old man by the time he was captured. And throughout his life, he really didn't have much of a bigger stature than that. He was very small, very slight. He had a family, he had kids. But that didn't stop him from being one of the most notorious child killers and even cannibals of all time. It all started when he was born in May of 1870 in Washington, D.C. And his birth name was Hamilton Howard Fish. Albert was a nickname. According to some genealogy, his family had a long history of mental illness. His uncle was diagnosed with mania, his brother was sent to a state mental institution, and his sister was diagnosed with a mental affliction as well. His mother had visual hallucinations, and three other relatives were diagnosed with other mental illnesses. Now you have to remember that psychology and mental illness back in the 1920s wasn't actually very advanced. It's not that surprising. So when people are diagnosed with something called a mental affliction, they know something's wrong, they just don't have the wherewithal to know what. It didn't help matters that his parents abandoned him at a young age, and he was sent to an orphanage, which back in the 20s was a place of brutality, at least in Fish's memory. He was exposed to regular beatings and sadistic acts of brutality and cruelty. At one point, it was said that he was looking forward to the abuse because it brought him some kind of pleasure, which, I mean, not to kink shame or anything, is a little weird for somebody in an orphanage. When he was asked about the orphanage, Fish remarked, I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's when I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. By the year 1880, Ellen Fish, who was indeed Albert's mother, was now a widow and had a government job and soon removed Fish from the orphanage. He had little education and grew up learning to work more with his hands than with his brain. It wasn't long after Fish returned to live with his mother that he began a relationship with another boy who introduced him to drinking urine and eating feces. According to Fish, in 1890, he relocated to New York and began his crimes 
against children. He made money working as a prostitute and started to molest boys. He lured children from their homes, tortured them in various ways. His favorite was using a paddle laced with sharp nails, and then he would proceed to rape them. As time went on, his sexual fantasies with children grew more fiendish and bizarre, often ending in murdering and cannibalizing them. And we'll get to more on that later. It's not super fun to get into, so I'm not going to detail it a great deal. There is a whole lot of very, very twisted things in Albert Fish's life, and I'm not going to go into great detail on a lot of them, just because I don't want you to throw up, cry, or really just be upset in any way, shape, or form. That's not my goal here. As I mentioned prior, though, Albert was a father. He had six children, and in 1898, he married and fathered said kids. The kids led average lives until 1917 when Fish's wife ran off with another man. At that time, they recalled Fish occasionally asking them to participate in his sadomasochistic games. In one such, he asked the children to paddle him with a nail-filled paddle until blood ran down his leg. He also enjoyed pushing needles deep into his skin. Uh, we'll get to more on that again a little bit later. After his marriage ended, Fish wrote to women listed in the personal columns of newspapers, describing in graphic detail the sexual acts he would like to share with them. The descriptions were so vile and disgusting that they were never made public, although they later were submitted as evidence in court. According to Fish, no women ever responded to his letters asking them for their hand in administering pain. Fish developed a skill for house painting and often worked in states across the country. Some believed he selected states largely populated with African Americans because he thought police would spend less time searching for the killer of an African American child rather than a Caucasian child. Thus, he selected black children to endure his torture using his quote, instruments of hell, which included a paddle with the nails, a meat cleaver, and an assortment of knives. The ruse Fish used to lure kids to his house was a very elaborate one, and it all started in 1928 when Fish answered an ad from an 18-year-old Edward Budd who was looking for part-time work to help with his family's finances. Fish, who introduced himself as Mr. Frank Howard, met with Edward and his family to discuss Edward's future. Fish told the family that he was a Long Island farmer looking to pay strong young workers $15 a week. The job seemed ideal and the Bud family was excited by Edward's luck in finding said job, and they instantly trusted the gentle, old, polite Mr. Howard. Fish told the Bud family that he would return the following week to take Edward and a friend of Edward's to his farm to begin working. However, Fish failed to appear on the day that was promised, but sent a telegram apologizing and setting a new date to meet with the boys. When Fish arrived on June 4th, as promised, he came bearing gifts for all the Bud children and visited with the family over lunch. To the Buds, Mr. Howard seemed like a typical loving grandfather. After lunch, Fish explained that he had attended a children's birthday party at his sister's home and would return later to pick up Eddie and his friend. He then suggested that the Buds allow him to take their oldest daughter as well, 10-year-old Grace, to the party. The unsuspecting parents agreed and dressed her in her Sunday best. Grace was excited about going to a party, 
as she left the house, and she was never seen again. The investigation into Grace's disappearance went on for six years before detectives received a substantial break in the case. On November 11, 1934, Mrs. Budd received an anonymous letter giving grotesque details of the murder and cannibalism of her daughter. The writer tortured Mrs. Budd with details about the empty house her daughter was taken to in Worcester, New York, how she was stripped of her clothing, strangled and cut into pieces and eaten. As if to provide solace to Mrs. Budd, the writer stated emphatically that Grace had not been sexually assaulted. Tracing the paper and the letter was written on eventually led police to a flop house where Fish was living. Fish was arrested and immediately confessed to killing Grace and other children. Fish, smiling as he described the grisly details of torture and murder, appeared to the detectives as the devil himself. The letter itself I will read to you, but be warned it is not pleasant. It's also written by a very uneducated man, so there are a lot of spelling mistakes and there are a lot of grammatical errors, so I'll do my best to keep it as true as possible, but just be warned that this is kinda messed up and it is a trigger warning, so you might want to skip ahead about a minute or so. Nevertheless, here it goes. My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the streamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go into any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out, and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven and one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, and tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the eleven-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten, except head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven. All of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, stewed. The little boy was next. Went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East, 100th Street Rear, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her, on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. 
I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her. She said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death and cut her into small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook it, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her though. I could have, had I wished. She died a virgin. It's important to note that the police investigated the letter. The story concerning Captain Davis and the famine in Hong Kong could not be verified. The part of the letter concerning the murders of Grace, however, was found to be accurate in its description of the kidnapping and subsequent events. Although it was impossible to confirm whether or not Fish had actually eaten parts of Grace's body, but given Fish's nature, it wouldn't surprise me. Fish was indeed eventually captured, and it was all thanks to some very clever detective work. The letter that was sent to Grace's family came from a small letter that read the NYPCBA, representing the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. A janitor at the company told the police that he had taken some of the stationery home, but left it at his rooming house at 200 East 52nd Street when he moved out. The landlady of the rooming house said that Fish checked out of that room a few days earlier. She said that Fish's son sent him money, and he asked her to hold his next check for him. William F. King was the chief investigator for the case. He waited outside the room until Fish returned. Fish agreed to go to headquarters for questioning, but then he brandished a razor blade and attacked King. The chief was undeterred though, disarming Fish and then he eventually took him to the police headquarters. Fish made no attempt to deny the murders of Grace Budd, saying that he meant to go to the house to kill Grace's brother, Edward. Fish said, quote, it never even entered his head, quote, to rape the girl. But he later claimed to his attorney that while kneeling on Grace's chest and strangling her, he did have two involuntary ejaculations. This information was used at trial to make the claim the kidnapping was sexually motivated, thus avoiding any mention of cannibalism. Now I wish I could say that those were his only crimes. However, after his arrest, more vile-natured incidences about Albert Fish came to light. During the night of July 14, 1924, nine-year-old Francis McDonnell was reported missing by his parents. He failed to return home after playing catch with his friends in the Port Richmond neighborhood of Staten Island. A search was organized and his body was found hanging by a tree in a wooded area near his home. He had been sexually assaulted then strangled with his suspenders. According to an autopsy, McDonnell had also suffered excessive lacerations to his legs and abdomen and his left hamstring had almost entirely been stripped of flesh. Fish refused to claim responsibility for this, although he later stated that he intended to castrate the boy, but fled when he heard someone approaching the area. McDonald's friends told the police that he was taken by an elderly man with a gray mustache. A neighbor also told the police he observed the boy, the similar looking man walking along a grassy path into the nearby woods. Francis's mother, Anna McDonald, said she saw the same man earlier that day. She told the reporters, 
quote, he came shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself and making queer motions with his hands. I saw his thick gray hair and his drooping gray mustache. Everything about him seemed faded and gray. This description resulted in the mysterious stranger becoming known as the Gray Man. The McDonald murder remained unsolved until the murder of Grace Budd. When several eyewitnesses among them, the Staten Island farmer Hans Kiel positively identified Fish as the odd stranger seen around Port Richmond on the day of McDonald's disappearance, Richmond County District Attorney Thomas J. Walsh announced his intention to seek an indictment against Fish for the boy's murder. At first, Fish denied the charges. It was only in March 1935, after the conclusion of his trial for the Bud murder and his confession to the killing of Billy Gaffney, that Fish confirmed to investigators that he had also raped and murdered McDonald. When the McDonald confession was made public, the New York Daily Mirror wrote that the disclosure solidified Fish's reputation as the most vicious child slayer in criminal history. I did mention another name in there, Billy Gaffney does come to mind as well. And I'll read you his story as well. On February 11th, 1927, three-year-old Billy Beaton and his 12-year-old brother were playing in the apartment hallway in Brooklyn with four-year-old Billy Gaffney. This story really chills me to the bone. I remember this one from a book, which I'll get to in a minute as well. When the 12-year-old left for his apartment, both younger boys disappeared. Beaton was found later on the roof of the apartments. When asked what happened to Gaffney, Beaton said, quote, the boogeyman took him, unquote. Gaffney's body was never recovered. Initially, serial killer Peter Kudzinski was a suspect in the boy's murder. Then Joseph Meehan, a motorman on a Brooklyn trolley, saw a picture of Fish in a newspaper and identified him as the old man whom he saw on February 11th, 1927. The old man had been trying to quiet a little boy sitting with him on the trolley. The boy was not wearing a jacket, was crying for his mother, and was dragged by the man on and off the trolley. Beaton's description of the boogeyman matched Fish. Police matched the description of the child to Gaffney. Detectives of the Manhattan Missing Persons Bureau were able to establish that Fish was employed as a house painter by a Brooklyn real estate company during February of 1927. And on that day of Gaffney's disappearance, he was working at a location a few miles away from where the boy was abducted. Fish claimed the following in a letter to his attorney. I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There's a house that stands alone, not far from where I took him. I took the G-boy there, stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a piece of a dirty rag I picked out of the dump. Then I burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump. Then I walked back to the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked home from there. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails, homemade, short handle, cut, one of my belts in half, slit these in half, in six, about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, 
just below his belly button, then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. This I put in sacks weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into the pools of slimy water. You'll see all ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and pea wheeze, and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put it in the oven. Then I picked four onions and when meat was roasted about a quarter hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. Threw them in the toilet. Despite all the grisly details of that letter, some still refuse to believe that Fish was the actual murderer of Gaffney. But given his past and his future, it's most likely the case that Albert Fish did indeed kill and potentially even eat Billy Gaffney. The trial of Albert Fish was interesting. A lot of information about the man came to light, and it all began on March 11th, 1935 in White Plains, New York. Frederick P. Close presided as judge in Westchester County Chief Assistant Director Attorney Albert F. Gallagher was prosecuting attorney. Fish's defense counsel was James Dempsey, a former prosecutor and one-time mayor of Peekshill, New York. The trial lasted for 10 days. Fish pleaded insanity and claimed to have heard voices from God telling him to kill children. Several psychiatrists testified about Fish's sexual fetishes, which included sadism, masochism, flagellation, exhibitionism, voyeurism, peekerism, cannibalism, caporophagia, orophilia, hematolinegia, pedophilia, necrophilia, and infibulation. Dempsey and his summon noted that Fish was a psychiatric phenomenon and that nowhere in legal or medical records was there another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. The defense's chief expert witness was Frederick Wortham, a psychiatrist with an emphasis on child development who conducted psychiatric examinations for the New York criminal courts. During two days of testimony, Wortham explained Fish's obsession with religion and specifically his preoccupation with the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac. Wortham said that Fish believed that, similarly, sacrificing a boy would be penance for his own sins, and that even if the act itself was wrong, angels would prevent it if God did not approve. Fish attempted the sacrifice once before, but was thwarted when a car drove past. Edward Budd was the next intended victim, but he turned out to be larger than expected, so he settled on Grace. Although he knew Grace was female, it is believed that Fish perceived her as a boy. Wortham then detailed Fish's cannibalism, which in his mind he associated with communion. The last question Dempsey asked Wortham was 15,000 words long. 
detailed Fish's life and ended with asking how the doctor considered his mental condition based on his wife. Wortham simply answered, he is insane. Gallagher cross-examined Wortham on whether Fish knew the difference between right and wrong. He responded that he did not know, but that it was perverted knowledge based on his opinion of the sin, atonement, and religion, and thus was an insane knowledge. The defense called two more psychiatrists to support Wortham's findings. The first of four rebuttal witnesses was Menace Gregory, the former manager of the Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital, where Fish was treated during the 1930s. He testified that Fish was abnormal, but sane. Under cross-examination, Dempsey asked if caporophilia, urophilia, and pedophilia indicated a sane or insane person. Gregory replied that such a person was not mentally sick and that these were common perversions that were quote, socially perfectly all right, and that Fish was no different from millions of other people, some of whom were very successful. The next witness was the resident physician at the Tomes, Perry Lichtenstein. Dempsey objected to a doctor with no training in psychiatry testifying on the issue of sanity, but Justice Close overruled on the basis that the jury could decide what weight to give a prison doctor. When asked whether Fish causing himself pain indicated a mental condition, Lichtenstein replied, that is not masochism, as he was only punishing himself to get sexual gratification. The next witness, Charles Lambert, testified that caporophilia was a common practice and that religious cannibalism may be psychopathic, but, quote, was a matter of taste and not evidence of a psychosis. The last witness, James Vavasour, repeated Lambert's opinion. Another defense witness was Mary Nicholas, Fish's 17-year-old stepdaughter. She described how Fish taught her and her brothers and sisters several games involving overtones of masochism and child molestation. None of the jurors doubted that Fish was insane, but ultimately, as one later explained, they felt he should be executed anyway. They found him to be sane and guilty, and the judge ordered the death sentence. Fish arrived at prison in March of 1935 and was executed on January 16, 1936 in the electric chair at Sing Sing. He entered the chamber at 11.06 p.m. and was pronounced dead three minutes later. He was buried in the Sing Sing Prison Cemetery. Fish was said to have helped the executioner position the electrodes on his body. His last words were reportedly, I don't even know why I'm here. According to one witness present, it took two jolts before Fish died, creating the rumor that the apparatus was short-circuited by the needles that Fish inserted into his body. These rumors were later regarded as untrue, as Fish reportedly died in the same fashion and time frame as others in the electric chair. At a meeting with reporters after the execution, Fish's lawyer, James Dempsey, revealed that he was in possession of his client's final statement. This amounted to several pages of handwritten notes that Fish apparently penned in the hours just prior to his death. When pressed by the assembled journalists to reveal the document's contents, Dempsey refused, stating, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. And I do apologize for skipping over a bunch of the religious stuff. I didn't want to get too much into it, but I felt it was important to mention during the trial process. However, he did have reports in the past of odd behavior featuring religious overtones. 
He once wrapped himself in a carpet, saying that John the Apostle told him to. And this was just after 1917 when his wife left him. It was also about that time that he began to indulge in more self-harm. I mentioned earlier that I would go into a little bit more detail about what exactly he did involving the self-harm and needles. Well, he used to embed needles into his groin and abdomen. After his arrest, x-rays revealed that Fish had at least 29 needles lodged in his pelvic region, specifically his penis. He also hit himself repeatedly with a nail-studded paddle and inserted wool doused with a lighter fluid into his anus and set it alight. While Fish was never thought to have physically attacked or abused his own children, he did encourage them and their friends to paddle his buttocks with the same nail-studded paddle he used to abuse himself. He also developed his obsession with cannibalism around this time. Often preparing himself dinner consisting solely of raw meat, and he even sometimes served it to his children. All in all, Albert Fish was a very disturbed individual. Deranged, even. And I mentioned a book way earlier in this podcast. And it was called just that, Deranged. It's a very fascinating read, and it's filled with some great storytelling by Harold Schechter. You can find it on Amazon. It's a documentary-style book, but it tells it in such a way that it keeps you kind of riveted, wanting to know more about this fiendish killer, Albert Fish. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. If you did like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to find me on social media, you can do so as well. On Twitter, at HorrorShotsProd, as in production. On Facebook, at Facebook.com slash HorrorShots. Instagram, at OminousOriginsPod. Or even on Twitch nowadays, at MuskyFox. Fox, spelt F-A-U-X. Been playing some Dead by Daylight on there, and it's a good little jaunt. So if you want to stop by, feel free to. It's Monday to Fridays, 1 p.m. Eastern Time until whenever. Lastly, if you do want to support the show, you can absolutely do so by hitting up my Redbubble store where you can pick up some merch. But until next week... <laughs>